Well, this morning we return to the book of Revelation. Now, we did have a year off. We did have a year off. Consider that your interlude in the midst of the Great Tribulation. But there's a couple reasons I want to return to the book besides simply finishing it. Um, Mainly that in discussion about the end, the inbreaking of the kingdom of God, the coming of the glory of God, the destiny and hope of the church. It's important to have these things fixed before our eyes, and it's very difficult to do that unless one has worked through the appearance of that glory. In other words, unless one has worked through the end of the story and seen the coming of the new heavens and the new earth and the glory to which God has called us in Christ it's difficult for us to be oriented properly. And so the book of Revelation, among many, many other benefits, helps us by doing that. And so I did want to finish the book. Um, We happen to have paused uh, in the middle of the book, uh, chapters 12 through 14, the section that we're in, are kind of a backstory. They They are themselves kind of a dramatic interlude in the book, which begin with the birth of Christ, and they take us right up to the end of the age. And at the end of chapter 12, what had happened was the dragon, the serpent, had been disbarred from heaven, thrown down to the earth, and enraged, and he goes off to wage war against the church. And the church is depicted there as a woman who had fled into the wilderness, for 1,260 days or 42 months. So that's where we left off um, in this backstory. So, and today, picking up in Revelation chapter 13, we probe the nature of this dragon's war on the church. And we'll look at the, the text under three headings. They're there on the back inside page of the bulletin the beast, the warfare, and the exhortation. So, Revelation chapter 13. Verse 1, and the dragon stood on the shore of the sea. The dragon stood on the shore of the sea. This is a picture of the dragon summoning up his servant from these chaotic waters, from the sea. And we've seen this many times. We've seen it in Revelation. We've seen it in the Psalms. We see it in other places. But the sea in Scripture represents the churning, rebellious Nations. So uh, among the many benefits of Revelation is the refurnishing of your imagination. We've talked about that. Revelation sort of um, stocks up the warehouse of mental furniture that we have and says, see the world this way. Here's a set of prophetic and apocalyptic symbols that you need if you're going to read the world rightly. So, the churning sea represents the nation. So the text says, I saw a beast coming out of the sea. If you lived in Asia Minor, essentially the western part of what is today Turkey, Rome, the seat of the empire, would appear, especially through her naval might, would appear literally to rise out of the sea. But the the image here is primarily spiritual. Later in the book of Revelation, in chapter 17, 
the great prostitute, who we shall see is the city of Rome, is said to be seated on many waters. And there, in chapter 17, John is told explicitly, we don't have to guess here, that the waters on which the prostitute are seated are peoples, multitudes, nations, and tongues. So the sea represents the nations under the authority of this beast, and the beast is here, and here I'm hearkening back to earlier parts of this series, the beast is here first and foremost the Roman Empire. She arises out of the chaotic sea of the nations. The beast, the text says, has ten horns, seven heads. The Roman beast is the mirror image of the dragon. When the dragon was introduced, the dragon had ten horns and seven heads. And so what's taking shape throughout these chapters in the book of Revelation is the emergence of a false trinity, a parody of the triune God, the true trinity. Here the dragon begets, he calls forth the beast, who is the image of the invisible dragon, even as Christ, begotten by the Father, is the image of the invisible God. And as the text unfolds, it becomes quite clear that the beast is an anti-Christ, a parody of the true Christ. And next week, Lord willing, we'll see the emergence of another beast. Today we have a beast from the sea, but there's a beast from the land. And that beast from the land mimics the work of the Holy Spirit. And so you have Father, Son, and Holy Spirit set over against the dragon, the sea beast, and the land beast. And so the dragon... The serpent, the accuser, in addition to being a slanderer, is a deceiving imitator of God the Father. And so John has this image of this beast coming up out of the sea. And what he's doing is he's creatively reworking the vision of Daniel chapter 7, which was our Old Testament reading this morning. Daniel sees four beasts there, representing Four empires. You might have noticed that Daniel's beasts in Daniel 7, they emerge out of the sea. And the fourth beast that Daniel sees, the most terrifying of all the beasts, was a picture of the coming Roman Empire. And what John does is he he takes a composite picture of all Daniel's beastly kingdoms. John's beast is all of Daniel's beasts sort of integrated together. And this means that while this beast is in the immediate context of Revelation, the Roman Empire, we can expect it to have other manifestations in history. That's an important point. We made it quite a bit in the early part of this series, but I'll just remind you of it. The beast is first and foremost Rome, but it can be other bestial states which oppress and oppose the church. And so the beast has ten crowns on its horns. Seven heads, ten horns, ten crowns. Seven and ten are numbers of completeness. And here, this signifies the the comprehensiveness, the fullness, the worldwide effect of the beast's power. And in addition, the Roman beast has blasphemous names on its heads. 
So notice you have crowns and you have blasphemous, blasphemous names. They both speak of the Roman beast, the empire's pretensions to divinity. The empire is a beast, but she looks crowned and she has blasphemous names. And to this monstrous creature in verse 2, the dragon gives his power and his throne and great authority. So this language here implies a direct transfer of authority from the dragon, the demonic power, to the Roman state. And so the picture here is nothing less than that of a demonically perverted raw power of the empire. And so what John is doing here. He's envisioning the true nature of the Roman beast, which has only just begun, only just begun to unveil its demonic character at the time John writes. The real fury, the real fury of this beast is something that will not be unleashed on the church till the second and third century. So for now, the key point is this. Roman power... Roman thrones, Roman authority, is delegated demonic power. Something no one would say in polite company in the first century. After all, Rome had provided the great Pax Romana. Rome provided peace. Rome provided infrastructure. Rome provided roads. Rome provided social welfare. Rome provided military protection. Rome provided economic growth. Rome provided expansion. And here's John in the first century saying that Rome is receiving its authority from the demonic dragon. And in verse 3, we get a piece of information which is particular to this Roman beast. One of its heads. And that, is, that means one of its emperors. So the beast is the empire. The heads are symbolic, perhaps, of various emperors. One of its emperors seemed to have a mortal wound, but its wound was healed, and the whole earth was astonished and followed the beast. John is alluding here to a widely held myth in the first century throughout the empire that after Nero committed suicide in 68 AD, that he was really still alive. It's known as the Nero Redivivus myth, the Nero coming back to life myth. And many, even for a century or so, expected Nero to return to power. Now, Nero rules in the 60s, and he declined. The beginning of his rule was relatively stable and sane, but he declines into a very violent form of madness before he commits suicide at the age of 30. He murdered numerous members of his family, including his own mother, including his pregnant wife, whom he kicked to death. He dressed up as a wild beast to attack and to rape male and female prisoners. He burned Christians at the stake to light up his garden parties. And he launches the first imperial persecution of Christians, though that seems to have been limited to Rome and not been empire-wide. And so you have this unraveling of Nero and his reign. 
in the late 60s. And it seemed to point to the end of the empire. And then Nero dies of suicide. And his death is followed by what is a very chaotic year known as the year of the three emperors. And what's happening at this time is Vespasian is leading a siege in the war against the Jews at Jerusalem. And Vespasian, the general, leaves Jerusalem. He leaves his son Titus in charge. And Vespasian returns to the capital city. He secures the throne. And then later, Titus and Domitian, after Vespasian, stabilize the empire. And so the beast, it seems, received a mortal wound, but miraculously was healed and stabilized. And John is appealing to that story here. Thus the Roman beast, and this is important to see, the Roman beast becomes itself a demonic parody of Christ, the lamb who was slain, but whose mortal wound was overcome. Even even as the dragon himself has been mortally wounded by Christ, but disguises his defeat as victory, the same is true of the Roman Empire. They're both already defeated. They shall both go to destruction, but they can only mimic resurrection. So the empire has a kind of resurrection after Nero's death. And this mimicry is effective. The text says the whole earth marveled and they followed the beast. Isn't it marvelous when... Big, huge government states are able to make a big comeback. People worship that stuff. Again, this mimics the universal worship ascribed to the slain but standing lamb in Revelation chapter 5. So verse 4 says, They worship the dragon, for he has given his authority to the beast, and they worship the beast. Worship of the one, the dragon, entails worship of the other, the beast. So you have here, you have demonic empire worship. And it contains a parody of true worship. They say this, who is like the beast? I mean, who could possibly do this except the government? We have no institution big enough, strong enough, wise enough, powerful enough, with enough resources to do this. I mean, who is like the beast? Who can do this? Who can wage war against him? This mimics the worship of Israel at the Red Sea, where their jubilant cry, after, by the way, being delivered from another ancient beast, the Egyptian empire, right? their jubilant cry was, Who is like the Lord among the gods? John is echoing that here. Who is like the beast? And their second question of these worshipers reveals a sort of cowardly motivation. Who can fight against it? It's power. Here it's persecuting blasphemous power that gives the state the air of invincibility. And so power worshipers, they marvel at the beast. Of course, there's an answer here. It's implied... And it's seen in the rest of the book, and it's that the lamb and his followers can, in fact, fight against the beast. 
But that's the beast. That's the beast. The second point is the warfare. So in verse 5, the beast is given a mouth uttering proud words and blasphemies. The total state is always a blasphemous state. It always makes claims only God can make. And here the Roman state is allowed to make the, to exercise this authority for what the text says are 42 months by divine permission. Ultimately, God is sovereign mysteriously even over the reign of the beast. He allows it. He limits its authority. And the 42 months, which is 1,260 days, which is three and a half years, various uh, equivalent phrases are used in Revelation. And we've argued throughout the series, let me just refresh your memory, that the 42 months is the whole period of the church's historical existence. It's a broken seven. It's a, it's a, it's a, a way of saying it's the time of the church's pilgrimage before her full glory. So, God will deliver the church. He has delivered the church from Rome. And he'll deliver it through this whole period from other bestial states as well. So, in verse 6, the beast opens its mouth to utter blasphemies against God and his name. And against his dwelling place and against those who dwell in heaven. This is important, and we've seen it a lot in Revelation as well, so again, maybe this can serve as a refresher. To blaspheme God's name and his dwelling is to blaspheme at the same time those who dwell in heaven. Those who dwell in heaven, that is the church in John's vision. Very much John sees the church as in Mount Zion, as around the throne, as seated with Christ, as the heavenly temple, as those who dwell in heaven. But he also sees the church in her outward estate as being trampled. And he makes that distinction. And so the beast blasphemes not only God, but blasphemes the church. Blasphemes the Lord and his bride. Totalitarian states can brook no rivals. They will eventually blaspheme God and the church. And so verse 7 continues, The beast was allowed to make war on the saints and conquer them. The, the future of the church, at least the short-term or near-term future of the church, is marked out here, and it's marked out pretty grimly. Notice the text, The beast will wage war on the church. The church is the holy city, the woman in the wilderness. And shockingly, the text says, the beast will conquer her. The beast will conquer her. So all Christian naivete is excluded here. Right? All rose-colored optimism is excluded. All phony or illusory notions of what Christian victory looks like is excluded by this text. It's shattered by this text. The church is trampled, John says, conquered in the beast's war. So the church, and only the church, conquers by being conquered. 
We've seen this throughout Revelation. It's one of its great themes. Other ideologies or religions may conquer by conquering. The church conquers by being conquered. It's one of the great themes of Revelation. John sees the martyrs as victors, as triumphant in the heavenly temple. Victory for us is faithfulness unto death. Because we're the people who follow the slain, yet the standing lamb. So the end of verse 7. Authority was given to it over every tribe and people and language and nation. Again, it's a parody of the universal authority given to Christ. And the result in verse 8 is all who dwell on earth will worship it. All who dwell on earth, and we've seen this again previously as another reminder, is a reference to the unredeemed, the unsealed. So what's going on here is the persecution of the church sorts out worshipers. When the state begins to trample the church, it brings its worshipers into submission. It ends up here with the whole earth worshiping it. And those who worship the beast are called here those whose names have not been written in the book of life belonging to the Lamb who was slain from the creation of the world. Paul tells us, in many places, but say 2 Timothy chapter 1, that the grace that was given to you in Christ Jesus was given to you before the ages began. This book of life right here, it's used at the end of the book of Revelation as the criteria for the final judgment, for entry into the new Jerusalem. It's the role of all the elect people of God. And there's no, there's no tension in John's mind between this decree and free human agency. These people freely worship the beast. They reject the lamb who was slain. They worship the beast who was slain. So my, that's the warfare that John marks out for the church. Third point is the exhortation. And it comes in verse 9. Same Preface that you hear in the warnings to the seven churches at the beginning of the book. He who has an ear, let him hear. And here we learn that this depiction of the beast, while it has a lot of details, it's really not to satisfy our curiosity. What John is trying to do in this passage is to wake us up to the menacing power of the dragon. And the dragon is clothed here in the legitimate garb of the powers that be, the Roman authorities. Again, Revelation is about tearing masks off, seeing under the surface of life, and thus about the discernment, largely, we must say, political discernment, that faithful discipleship requires. And so the, the exhortation that we're about to read challenges the church. It says, you have to see right. You have to discern right. You have to label right. You have to use the right words and the right set of images. You have to see the beast and the beast of your own day and the coming warfare. So verse 10 says this. How is this for an exhortation from John the Apostle? If anyone is to go into captivity, into captivity he will go. If anyone is to be killed with the sword, with the sword he will be killed. 
Prophets have to say stuff like this to the church. Nobody wants to hear this. It's it's almost impossible to imagine most American preachers saying anything even remotely resembling this. The church is here given a sober reminder that both prison, captivity, and execution, the sword, await the faithful. Please send your check to support our continued ministry. (laughs) This is not a depiction of the fate of unbelievers. Unbelievers are worshipers of the beast. They're safe from this. They capitulate. This is a future suffering awaiting the faithful. And it's important for us to see this, especially in the Reformed tradition that we're in, that the same sovereign decree that inscribes the names of the elect in the Lamb's book of life from all eternity ordains this path of captivity and execution as the route to conquest. And this destiny for John is fully compatible. He's already told us the saints are sealed, they're protected, they're nourished, they're reigning on Mount Zion, and they are destined for execution. It's like Jesus telling his disciples, they will round you up, they will put you in prison, they will kill you. Not one hair of your head will perish. That's what Jesus says. Now remember, John who writes this is already captive. There's no hypothetical imprisonment in John's view. He's a prisoner of the Roman state on the Isle of Patmos. And he told us all the way back in chapter 1 that with him, we are partakers of the kingdom. What's John doing? Chained on a rocky island in the Aegean Sea? He's partaking of the kingdom of God. And he says that with him, you're called to partake of the kingdom and the tribulation and the endurance that are in Jesus. All three things are partaken of at the same time. The kingdom, the tribulation, the endurance. And the last sentence of the text confirms that the saints, you and I, and our endurance is the goal of this exhortation. Isn't it interesting? The text starts with stuff that can be intimidating. Let's face it, right? There's a beast and there's all sorts of details and heads and horns and this and that. But the purpose of this passage is for your endurance. This calls, the text says, this calls, notice that, for the endurance and the faithfulness of the saints. Being in the Lamb's book of life demands and requires and necessitates this exhortation, this endurance to the end. And even for those of us who may not live under a menace, an immediate menace the way John's first hearers did, the text is still a call to discernment. We're not going to get this all right, I think, in our own day. And people could even disagree about exactly how to discern this. But certainly the text says we have to recognize when our own nation or our own culture engages in beastly behavior. When it's calling on us to compromise our allegiance to Christ. When it's parodying him and offering substitutes. It's a kind of training 
And we have to steel ourselves because if we compromise with the stuff in our midst now, we're unlikely to stand if the beast emerges more fully in our time and shows its true colors. So just like it is for the Christians in Asia Minor, conquest for us is by taking up the cross and persevering in faith. It is what John calls endurance and faithfulness. And that's a sobering thing. It's realism. But it has to be combined with good cheer. Right? When we are readers of the book of Revelation, we remember that it's a message of the risen, transfigured, resplendent Christ of chapter 1, whom death cannot hold, who sends this message to the church, who has himself conquered. And so our sober realism must be combined always with good cheer. In this sense, we are all optimists. Because our Lord himself trod this very path. He was taken captive, imprisoned, and executed by the sword of this beast in its earlier manifestation. And he told us, take heart. Don't lose heart. I've overcome the world. The empire's resurrection is a fraud. The lamb is risen indeed. Amen.